Welcome to the Eagle and Child podcast, where we share the stories and thoughts of church history's heroes to inspire and equip the church of today. I'm your host, Leila Nahavandi. We hope you enjoy this episode. Well, hello and welcome to the Eagle and Child podcast. We're so glad that you've joined us today. I'm super excited about this next episode. We are going to be looking at Blaise Pascal, um, an incredible thinker throughout uh, history and also church history. And I am very excited to have my good friend um, John Adams on the podcast with us today, one of the favorites of the Eagle and Child podcast. So welcome, John. It's so good to see you. Thanks. It's good to be here. Yeah. So John, um, for anyone who doesn't know John, um, who if you haven't watched any of the earlier episodes that he was on, um, John has been a missionary in Haiti for the last nine years um, and has had an incre- incredible ministry over there. Um, obviously, things in Haiti have been very crazy for the last sort of year or so. Um, so John has just moved back to America. But John, can you tell us maybe a little bit about that ministry over there in Haiti? Yeah, so my parents have had a ministry there for 40 years. Mm-hmm. Uh, they plant churches and uh, start schools and feed the hungry and uh, have a Bible college and a lot of other things. Um, and it's still going, even though we're not there. We have leaders on the ground wow. who are running it right now. But uh, yeah, still going strong. Wow. Well done. That's awesome. And um, at the end, we'll sort of direct people to some links and different things. If you want to support that ministry, that would be awesome. Um, John also has got a lot of um, theological training and study under his belt. Is it just incredible with um, history, has done some courses on Theos U and uh, is just a brilliant thinker and writer. One of my favorites um, that I know of. Uh, he's just such an excellent writer and has done an awesome course on C.S. Lewis on, on VSU and uh, is it Introduction to History or something or World History or the Church, church History, history one and church two. Church History, yeah. yeah. Um, so definitely go and check those courses out as well. Um, but John, I'm really excited to be talking to you about Blaise Pascal today. Can you give us a little bit of an introduction to who Blaise Pascal is, um, just his background, his spiritual formation, Who's this guy? Yeah, Blaise Pascal, uh, in a nutshell, he was a French mathematician and mm-hmm. uh, apologist in the 17th century. Uh, he only lived 39 years, but he probably accomplished more in that amount of time than uh, mm-hmm. I'll ever accomplish in my life. <laughs> <laughs> All of us, uh, He was yeah. <laughs> one of the world's uh, great polymaths. He knew something about everything. Mm-hmm. He invented the world's first calculator. Uh, wow. Some say the first computer. Uh, He made a lot of contributions to science, like Pascal's triangle. Uh, He also came up with uh, Pascal's wager, which is a famous argument for the existence of God. And he's probably best known for an unfinished work uh, of apologetics that uh, he left unfinished at his death, which was called the pensée, which means the thoughts uh, in French. Wow. Yeah, I love... um John also fluently speaks French, so I love that you can actually bring that into this discussion on Blaise Pascal. So feel free to do whatever you like in French in this. Um, that would be great. Um, yeah, brilliant. So uh, how did he become a Christian? What what was that sort of trajectory like for him? Well, I kind of got to start at the beginning of his life. Uh, Pascal mm-hmm. was born in uh, 1623 in Clermont, which is a small mm-hmm. town in central France. Uh, his mother died when he was three. His father, Etienne, was a, he worked for the French government. He was a tax official. Uh, and uh, when he, Pascal was eight, he got a promotion. And so the family moved uh, to Paris. 
And Pascal's father was kind of a free thinker for his time. Uh, he he had played a major role in all of his children's education. He homeschooled them. And he had the mentality that uh, he's going to let the kids learn uh, what they're ready to learn or what they're eager to learn at the time uh, that they're eager to learn it. And so uh, his plan for Blaise Pascal, his son, was that he would teach him the classical languages, Greek and Latin, from age 11 to age 15. Uh, so he actually took all of the other books out of the house, and he was just going to focus on that. Uh, but the boy was already into math, uh, and apparently uh, taking all the math books out of the house kind of had a reverse psychological effect. Like from that time forward, all he wanted to do was math. And so eventually the father kind of gave in and let him uh, do math because he was working out geometry proofs you know, <laughs> in the dark in his bedroom. Uh, and so uh, he, he saw that he had a great uh, propensity for math and, and let him kind of uh, follow his passion. Um, he uh, he kind of grew up in an in a interesting time. Uh, the 1600s were a time, it's about 100 years after the Protestant Reformation. Uh, it's about 100 years before the Enlightenment. So it's a time when science is really beginning to come into its own. It's beginning to develop. Uh, it's also like a time when there's a lot of war uh, over religious issues going on all over Europe. Protestants and Catholics are fighting. Um, and as a result of that, like some people are turning to science for answers to ultimate questions. Uh, they're, they're fed up with all of the religious infighting. Uh, mm -hmm. And they're trying to, you know, found a new worldview based on reason alone. And so Pascal kind of grew up in that atmosphere of uh, having to decide, like, you know, what am I? Am I a Catholic? Am I a Protestant? Mm -hmm. Am I an atheist? Uh, you yes. know, what is ultimately uh, the truth? And, you know, there were a lot of people in his day that were kind of holding on to the old you know, the old system, one God, one church, one country. And there are other people that are saying, you know, let's leave all that religion stuff behind. It's too divisive. Let's just focus on science and progress. And uh, Pascal uh, in his own life was kind of caught between uh, those two worlds. When he was a teenager or when he was a young boy, uh, uh, Descartes wrote the Discourse on Method, uh, which basically said that uh, it was a philosophical argument that, you know, you should practice radical skepticism toward anything that can't be uh, known with absolute certainty by the mind, uh, which obviously ruled out religion uh, and most religious claims. Uh, and then uh, he also saw Galileo uh, get put under house arrest by the Catholic Church for daring to teach that the, you know, uh, earth revolved around the sun rather than the other way around. And uh, so that's the kind of the, the milieu uh, that he grew up in. He was very gifted. Um, he, and because his father worked for the government, he had the opportunity to attend scientific conferences and kind of mingle with the best of the best, uh, you know, from the time he was very young. And, uh, you know, so uh, before long, he was making discoveries of his own. Uh, he, you know, started uh, experimenting. He actually formulated the law of hydraulics, uh, which wow. don't ask me to explain how that works. Yeah. I'm, I'm not Same. a science guy, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but he, he figured it out. And uh, he wrote a paper uh, proving the existence of the vacuum. Uh, wow. He designed the first syringe. He actually invented the first wristwatch. He, wow. he designed the first bus route in Paris. So he had wow. a lot of different gifts, a lot of different interests. 
Uh, when he was 19, there's a famous story that says he actually invented the world's first uh, very primitive computer. His father was very busy. He, he was always working with numbers because he was a tax man. And to save his father time, he invented a calculating machine that could uh, cut his workload uh, in half. And so in some ways, you know, he was, it kind of seemed like the world was his oyster. Like he could do anything. He was well-connected. He had plenty of money. Uh, you know, he was young. Uh, it might not have seemed like uh, he would have had much place in his heart for God. Uh, and yet the other side of Pascal was that uh, he actually had known a lot of suffering uh, over the first 19 years of his life. Uh, his mother died when he was three. Um, he was an invalid from a very early age, like uh, oh. basically for his entire life, he couldn't eat solid food. Uh, he always had wow. to have other people uh, kind of take care of him. Some of his uh, uh, experiments uh, in physics, other people had to do them. Like he had one experiment that had to do with atmospheric pressure. And uh, so somebody had to climb a mountain to prove that, you know, I, I can't remember exactly what he had, they had to prove, but uh, he couldn't do it himself. He had to send his friend uh, wow. to climb the mountain for him because he was uh, in such poor health. Wow. And uh, when he was 23, uh, his father slipped on some ice and broke his leg really badly. Like the bone was poking out oh, of the yeah. flesh. And so uh, Blaise Pascal went and hired a, surge, a couple of surgeons to move into the house with them for a few months and set the bone and help his father recuperate. And it just so happened that these men were Jansenists. Jansenism was a movement within the Catholic Church at that time that really emphasized the teachings of Augustine, you know, the grace of God, the sovereignty of God, predestination, and uh, these guys, you know, started talking to Pascal while they were treating his father over these few months, and uh, they converted him to their point of view. Pascal became convinced that uh, what they were saying uh, was the truth. And uh, wow. I think Jansenism appealed to Pascal on a couple of different levels. One was uh, Jansenism is pretty close to Calvinism. And if you've ever mm -hmm. spent much time around Calvinism, you know this is a system, a theological system mm -hmm. that's very logical, right? It's, it, there's a lot of logical arguments being made in it. And uh, that goes back to Augustine, who was that way. Mm -hmm. And that appealed, I think, to Pascal's mathematical mind. Like he likes mm -hmm. to, for things to make sense, to be provable, to be airtight. Uh, but I think it appealed to him on another level, too, because Pascal mm -hmm. had known so much suffering in his life. This yeah. idea that like everything is kind of part of a, a, a God's plan, that even suffering mm -hmm. is part of God's sovereign will and that he works all things together for the good of believers, you know, um, is obviously a biblical teaching. And I think that appealed to Pascal on a different level that maybe his suffering, his, the kind of absurdity, seeming absurdity of life, uh, is, is not in vain. Mm. Um, there's a real undercurrent of sadness, uh, to a lot of Pascal's writing, like Pascal can, he can be gloomy, um, but he never makes a gloomy impression on the reader. Like other people have pointed that out. Like it's actually kind of refreshing to read him because he's so honest. Like he can just be searing <laughs> honest. And yet like it leaves you feeling better. <laughs> oh, wow. sometimes the things that he's talking about can be very dark. Uh, like, for example, one thing that Pascal says about life, he compares life uh, 
uh, to people being stuck in a prison. And every once in a while, the guards come in and take someone out for execution. And the rest of, of us stay in the prison house, basically living with that dread and that anxiety. And, uh, you know, that, I think that resonates with a lot of people's experience of the world. You know, we, we know that death is coming. You know, there's a lot of suffering and kind of seeming meaninglessness in this life. Um, and, you know, every once in a while, things get shaken up. And so that, that's Pascal's vision uh, of life. Um, and yet his conviction, I think, gave him a sense of peace that, you know, things are not the way they're supposed to be right now because of the fall. And yet mm-hmm. God is at work. He's, he's sovereign. And even the worst suffering uh, is going to work out for, for the good of people who love God. Uh, Pascal uh, converted to Jansenism and under his influence, basically his entire family uh, became Jansenists. His younger sister, Jacqueline, uh, became a nun at the convent, the Jansenist convent outside of Paris called Port Royal. And yet, uh, ironically, Pascal himself uh, did not immediately uh, go into the religious life. Pascal was actually torn between kind of his life as a scientist and the wealth and acknowledgement that that brought and, you know, his new religious mm-hmm. faith for about eight years. Uh, and he actually didn't fully pursue uh, Christ until what he called his night of fire. And so uh, it's a very famous uh, mm-hmm. uh, event if you've ever read anything about mm-hmm. Christian history. November 23rd, 1654, Pascal it has like a sort of vision of Christ on the cross, and he tries to pr- like communicate whatever this vision was on paper. He actually writes it down. He calls it his memorial, and uh, it's really just a bunch of sentence fragments. It's obvious that something heavy was happening, but you can't quite catch what it is, but you can kind of get it you know, by reading his words Here's just a, like an excerpt of what, of what he wrote. He says, from about half past 10 in the evening until about half past 12, and then he has an all, caption, all caps, fire, God of <laughs> Abraham, God of Isaac, God of Jacob, not the God of philosophers and savants, certitude, certitude, feeling, joy, peace. So, you know, you can Google it and read the whole thing if you're interested. It's a beautiful uh, yeah. piece of writing, and it kind of communicates that, you know, some of what was going on in his heart. Mm-hmm. So after he had this experience, at that point, he uh, moved in to Port Royal, uh, kind of gave up his earthly pursuits, and uh, he never wrote anything under his own name uh, ever again. And so it's at that point that, that Pascal becomes uh, an apologist. Now, the first uh, thing that Pascal kind of gets into, Pascal after this point, gets himself into a series of controversies. I don't think he quite means to, but he keeps uh-huh. kind of upsetting people and then having to, you know, defend his point of view uh, in writing. <laughs> and so the first thing that was going on was that the Jansenist movement had actually attracted negative attention from the rest of the Catholic Church. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there was this other group called the Jesuits um, who were kind of like the Pope's attack dogs, they were the guys who went around making sure that there was no heresy going on in France. And, and there was a lot of heresy going on in France, and so they were very busy. Uh, yeah. And so they caught wind of the Jansenists, and to them, the Jansenists sounded very Protestant. 
which they do. Uh, and basically they uh, decided that the Jansenists are a little too Protestant for comfort. And so they are trying to get Port Royal shut down. They're trying to uh, label the Jansenists as heretics. And so Pascal has to write a rebuttal uh, which he calls the Lettres Provinciales, the Provincial Letters, uh, basically rebutting the, Jesu the Jesuit arguments and uh, defending uh, Jansenism. And so basically the heart of the dispute was over whether uh, God's grace is inclusive or exclusive. And so the Jesuits, mm -hmm. the Jesuits God's grace is inclusive. Uh, you know, basically the Jesuits believed that as long as somebody adhered outwardly to the Catholic mm -hmm. Church, they were good. You know, they would mm -hmm. be saved, they would go to heaven. They kind of had a lowest common denominator mm -hmm. uh, vision of Christianity. And Pascal disagreed. He said God's grace is exclusive. He said God only gives grace to those whom he chooses, very Augustinian. Mm -hmm. And if he's given it to you, people will know it because your life will change. There will be wow. outward uh, marks that, that God has uh, bestowed his grace upon you. And so he accuses the Jesuits of kind of diluting Jesus's teaching, you know, watering it down for the lowest common denominator. He insists that Christianity has to be a demanding morality founded on the love of God. And he kind of accuses the Jesuits of wanting to update Christianity and make it easier for modern people. You know, he says they basically believe that, well, yeah, okay, Augustine was good enough for his own day. But uh, we need teaching for modern times. And Pascal says, you know, if religious, religious truth is eternal, if Augustine was right in his day, uh, he's still right today. And so uh, the book wasn't very well received by the, by the church hierarchy. The Pope put it on the index of forbidden books, which basically meant wow. you'd go to jail if you were caught reading it. Uh, but everyone in France read it anyway, uh, because... <laughs> Partly because Pascal wrote in a very, he didn't write like in a dry theological style. Mm -hmm. He wrote a uh, very like biting, witty, satirical mm -hmm. kind of uh, attacks on, on the Jesuits. And it was kind of like the 17th century equivalent of must-see TV. Like everybody <laughs> wanted to see the Jesuits get owned. Uh, uh, so the provincial letters uh, succeeded. Um, and at that point, uh, the legal attacks on, on, the, on Jansenism kind of backed off for a little bit. And so Pascal actually uh, started writing another book, which was tr a book intended to try to win his uh, skeptical contemporaries back to faith. He knew that a lot of people in the scientific world that he had been in were abandoning Christianity, were leaving the faith. Mm. Um, and he, he wanted to write something uh, that would win them back. And he never finished it. He had hundreds of little fragments uh, all over his house uh, at the time of his death, and somebody gathered them up, and an editor actually like organized them and, uh, and collected them into the Pensée, uh, which you can, you can buy today and, and read. But they're, they're fragmentary because uh, he never had the chance to actually uh, finish the book. But the Pensée... Uh, is an apologetic, and it basically uh, follows a three-step method. Um, his, his approach to trying to convince unbelievers was basically uh, to first show that religion is not contrary to reason, uh, mm. but worthy of reverence and respect. That's his first goal. 
Next, to make religion attractive so that good men wish it were true, and then to show that it is true. Um, and so step one for Pascal is to show that Christianity isn't contrary to reason. He, he's not trying to prove Christianity by reason necessarily, but he's just trying to show that it's not against reason. It's not unreasonable. And uh, he has a lot of different arguments that he makes uh, in the book. If somebody wants to you know, look at the book and see what he says, they can. Uh, one of the things that's interesting about the book is that he, he spends as much time saying that people are unreasonable as he does <laughs> as saying that Christianity is reasonable. And so he's, he's very skeptical of the skeptics' reliance on reason. He's, he's like, uh, you know, people are actually not really governed by reason like they claim to be. Mm. But uh, he's, he's, he, he, talk, he says at one point, like a, a fly buzzing in the ear of a judge can change the verdict <laughs> depending <laughs> on the day. Like we're not, you know, we're not as governed by reason as we would like to think. Mm. He says one of the wow. most unreasonable things that people do is that they spend most of their lives avoiding life's most important questions. You know, the most important question in life is, is there anything after death? Like, what happens when we die? And people spend most of their time thinking about anything else. You know, they plunge themselves into constant distractions uh, to avoid thinking too hard about anything. Um, and so he, he, he says that man is great and wretched at the same time. He says, wow. you know, man is... On the one hand, man is wretched. He's a nothing compared to the infinite. He's a fragile bag of bones that lives his life on the precipice of death. He's easily distracted. He says, man is so vain that the slightest thing, like pushing a ball with a billiard cue, is enough to divert him. He's morally corrupt. Nothing is surer than that men will be weak. And he spends almost all of his time trying to distract himself from his own condition. He says, if our condition were truly happy... We should not need to divert ourselves from thinking about it. He says that we're tortured by our passions, especially the passion for glory. Uh, and we make ourselves, we end up making ourselves even unhappier than we all already are. And his famous quote is <laughs> that all of man's unhappiness results from his inability to sit quietly in a room with himself, which is an amazing quote when you really think about it. Mm. Think about how hard it is for anyone to do that. I, I don't know if you've ever, ever tried to do that. Just sit in a room and like, you know, five minutes will go by and it feels like an hour. And yeah. we're constantly, you know, having to distract ourselves and entertain ourselves. Mm. And, you know, in the smartphone era, we've now like solved the problem, right? Mm. We never have to be alone with our thoughts ever. Yeah. Uh, but Pascal says that's actually the problem is like we, we're not at peace mm. with ourselves. And so we're constantly getting ourselves into more trouble. <laughs> wow. uh, so man is wretched. But mm -hmm. on the other hand, he says man is also great. Uh, the size of man's ambitions in and of themselves hint at the fact that we're made for something much greater than the terrible condition that we're living in. Yeah. Like man, man acts and, and desires and thinks like a god, even though he's, you know, basically an animal. <laughs> <laughs> and so Pascal sums it up by saying that man's greatness lies in the fact that he knows that he is wretched. Mm. And so that man is great and wretched uh, at the same time. So Pascal tries to wow. show that Christianity explains both the greatness and the wretchedness of man. He says any system of wow. thought that's worth its time has to explain both of those facts. Mm. Man is great and man is wretched 
And he says, Christianity explains both because we're created in the image of God. So we're great. And we've mm. fallen into sin and are under the curse. And, the, and so we're also wretched. And Christianity also offers a, a way out. He says, you know, Christ, the God man has entered mm. into our wretchedness so that he might restore us uh, to our lost greatness. And uh, mm. from there, Pascal uh, gets very Augustinian, and he basically says that the way to be restored, the way out of our dilemma, is for God to reorder our loves. Uh, so mm -hmm. Pascal believed that there were three orders of loves that uh, people can live for. People can live for the body, the mind, mm -hmm. or the heart. So the lowest order of loves, he says, uh, is what the body loves. This is people who live for money, sex, and power, right? So life lived mm -hmm. for what the body loves, he says, ends in sorrow, because once those things are taken away, the person has nothing left to live for. So the next order of loves is what the mind loves, which are things like reason and logic and truth. This is what the scientist loves. He says, you know, the mind uh, can't bring us all the way to God, and it can be blinded by pride, but it can at least lead us to an awareness that there is something beyond itself, that there's something greater than itself. Mm. So Pascal doesn't see reason as the end-all be-all, like many of his contemporaries did. Mm. He, sees, he says reason's last step is the recognition that there are an infinite th number of things uh, which are beyond it. And so he says where God reaches us is not through the body or through the mind, but through the heart. He's, and by the heart, he doesn't just mean the emotions. Uh, he means the kind of intuitive grasp of goodness, truth, and beauty that people have. He said the heart has reasons that reason knows nothing about. And so uh, once the will is oriented toward God's will, he says, the body and the mind will kind of come into alignment with it. But if the heart refuses to submit to God's will, uh, a person will be dominated by their passions and their mind will, will not be at peace. And so uh, that's where Pascal's famous wager comes in. You may have heard of Pascal's wager. People often misinterpret the wager as a call to blind faith, you know, to believing without any evidence, uh, which is not exactly what Pascal was saying. Pascal thought there was plenty of evidence for God he just didn't think the evidence we have available to us can lead anyone to certainty because it's actually not the mind that, that is the organ by which we come to know God. It's the heart. Mm. And, uh, but people still have to make a decision uh, mm. you know, based on the amount of evidence they have available that could possibly mm. affect eternity. And so how does mm -hmm. a person do that? And wow. uh, Pascal kind of approaches this question like a mathematician. A lot of people haven't found his solution mm. satisfying. But I, I think it's helpful if you see it kind of from the right angle. So Pascal invented this thing called probability theory, uh, which is basically today uh, the mathematical underpinning of sports betting. I've never <laughs> bet on any sports, but this is what people use uh, to kind of determine what is a good bet and what is not a good bet. And in sports betting, there's a concept called expected value or EV, uh, to, so to use a simple illustration, if somebody handed you a die and told you, you have, it's $1 per roll, you can roll as many times as you want. If you roll a six, you win $10. Would you take that? Would you roll the dice? Yeah, sure. I don't yeah, really bet. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Why would you roll? Wait, what's the question? So I can only roll once and spend $1. 
No, you can roll as many times as you want. You have to pay a dollar every time you roll. But if you roll a six, you win $10. Yeah, because it's like one in six chance. So right. it sounds right. like high probability to me that I'd get it. <laughs> yeah, even if you roll wrong the first five times, yeah. the sixth time you win $6, right? Yeah. And so you're always going to come out on top yeah. uh, as long as you keep rolling. And so, uh, you know, that's called a positive expected value. Uh, it's a plus mm -hmm. EV decision. And so, uh, Pascal, uh, to the person who's kind of like wrestling with the question of God, like, you know, mm -hmm. I want to have absolute certainty, like Descartes tells me I should have, uh, you know, my heart is kind of pointing toward Christ, but, mm -hmm. you know, I don't know if I should make this decision if I can't have absolute mental certainty about, you know, about the questions of faith. And, and Pascal, at this, this, this point that Pascal comes in with Pascal's wager, he says, uh, basically, you should take the bet. Because mm -hmm. if you're right, you win everything, right? Yeah, I mean, you live wow. a pretty good life in this yeah. life. And then in eternity, you get everything. Yeah, and if wow. you're wrong, you don't actually lose all that much. Mm. Uh, and if you don't take the bet, if you reject Christ, if you're right, you haven't gained all that much, maybe a little bit of earthly pleasure, some of what you wanted to do that you wouldn't have been able to do as a Christian. But if you're wrong, then you lose mm. everything. You open yourself up to infinite risk. Wow. Yeah. Uh, and so Pascal basically says that in that situation, uh, the person you know the, who's kind of on the fence about faith should take the bet. She should f follow her heart, bet on Christ. Mm. Uh, it's a plus EV decision. Uh, mm -hmm. at some point it'll, it'll pay off. And so, uh, Pascal, uh, is kind of the first person to write an apologetic for the modern era. So he sees that the old order of things where people are expected to accept things based on the authority of institutions mm -hmm. like the church is kind of crumbling. Like that, that whole world mm -hmm. is kind of disappearing. At the same time, he also sees that the modern replacement for it that's kind of putting all their chips on reason is also going to crumble. And I think we're mm. seeing that borne out in our own day, uh, that reason mm. itself isn't sufficient. And so Pascal mm. uh, is saying that, you know, we, we, have, to, uh, we have to decide. Like, we, we, we have these huge decisions before us. We can't get all the way to any particular position based on reason alone. But we still have to live our lives, and so we have to make a choice. Uh, so Pascal's thinking in that regard leads uh, down the road to another form of philosophy uh, called existentialism, which begins with Soren Kierkegaard uh, mm -hmm. and some other people. Existentialism in the 20th century became the idea that uh, we kind of, you know, we can't really know what the ultimate purpose or meaning of life is. We just kind of have to create one for ourselves. Pascal wouldn't have agreed with that. Pascal was a Christian. He would have said that, you know, there is objective meaning to our life and, you know, the gospel provides meaning, uh, but we do have to uh, uh, commit ourselves to it in order to fully know it. Uh, it's it, The gospel and religious questions are something that are known uh, through the heart uh, mm -hmm. before they're known through the reason. And the heart and the mind work in tandem, uh, mm -hmm. but uh, primarily we make our decisions and know Christ by faith. 
You know, Dietrich Bonhoeffer says, only he who believes obeys, and only he who obeys uh, believes. Um, Pascal's had a big influence on uh, some of the more modern writers like C.S. Lewis, uh, because Pascal attached so much importance to the heart. Uh, Pascal Mm -hmm. tried to appeal not only to the reason, but to the imagination. Wow. Uh, He didn't. Pascal recognized that people's hearts are not neutral on mm-hmm. religious questions. He said, men despise religion. They hate it, mm-hmm. and they're afraid it may be true. And so before the apologist can convince someone that the gospel is true, uh, oftentimes he has to convince them that they should want it to be true uh, because it satisfies the deepest longings of their hearts. Uh, wow. Tim Keller wrote an article a few years ago on, uh, on Pascal, and he talked about this, and I'll I'll quote him. He says, do we take time to talk about the manifold and astonishing blessings of salvation? Do we give time and effort to explaining the new birth, our new name and identity, adoption into God's family, the experience of God's love and beholding Christ's glory, the slow but radical change in our character, a growing freedom from our past and peace in our present, power and meaning in the face of suffering, Membership in a new, universal, multiracial, countercultural community, a mission to do justice and mercy on the earth, guidance from and personal fellowship with God Himself, relationships of love that go on forever, the promise of our own future perfection and glorious beauty, complete confidence in the face of death, and the new heavens and new earth, a perfectly restored material world. You know, I've had friends and known people before who do street preaching, who kind of get out on the corner and, and yell at people, you know, uh, turn or burn kind of approach to evangelism. And uh, I ultimately, you know, have come to believe that that's not really that effective because most people who experience that have, they don't want that to be true. They're like, their, their heart hasn't been appealed to yet. Their imagination hasn't been stirred. Uh, and so the, the, the words, even though they might technically be correct, actually don't uh, sink in uh, because they're just appealing to somebody's mind rather than to, than to their heart. Um, wow. I don't know if you've ever seen The, the Chosen. That's uh, a TV yeah, series. Yeah, I love The Chosen. Yeah. yeah. I've been really encouraged and, and blessed by that recently uh, mm-hmm. just to see the show and just to kind of be reawakened uh, through that show to how beautiful the gospel stories actually are. And, uh, you know, I think as we evangelize, as we preach the gospel, Mm -hmm. as we, you know, share the gospel with other people, that's what we're aiming for. We're aiming for a gospel presentation that appeals Mm -hmm. to the heart as well as the mind that kind of makes somebody long for Jesus to actually be true. And then we can show him, then we can show them that, that the gospel is true. Mm -hmm. At that point, they're ready to receive it. Pascal, as we said, never finished the Pensee. Uh, he died at the age of 39. Uh, he had a stomach ulcer and meningitis, so he was uh, not in good health. Uh, before he died, though, he wrote uh, a prayer to God asking him to help him use his sickness properly, and it's a remarkable uh, statement of faith in the midst of suffering. Uh, even on his deathbed, uh, even though he was in terrible pain, uh, Pascal still believed that Jesus was a, a positive, uh, expected value decision. This is what he <laughs> prayed. He said, Lord, whose spirit is so good and so gentle, grant that I may conform to thy will just as I am, that being sick as I am, I may glorify thee in my sufferings. Unite my will with thine 
and my sufferings with those that thou hast suffered. Grant that mine may become thine. Unite me with thee, and thus, having some small part in thy suffering, I shall be filled wholly by thee with the glory which it has brought to thee, the glory in which thou dost dwell with the Father and the Holy Spirit forever and ever. Amen. Wow. So that's Pascal in a nutshell. <laughs> I love it. Um, John, that's an incredible overview. Um, uh, I love how you mentioned like some of those big events that um, fire night and, you know, uh, the big works that he's been involved in. Are there any other events or works that you want to share um, that you haven't mentioned yet that were really important that um, Pascal is known for? Pascal really just wrote two books. He wrote The Provincial Letters, uh, which I haven't read, and he wrote The Pensee, which I have. And, uh, you know, that's and he also had The Prayer in his, sick, uh, in his Sickness, which I read an extract from. It's much longer than what I read. And he also uh, had The Night of Fire, you know, his kind of conversion experience, which uh, I also didn't read all of. Um, but, yeah, that's, that's all the writing that he did. Mm-hmm. And you already mentioned as well some of the um, inventions and things that he's known for. Um, so maybe we can move into um, just a, an idea about like what influence has he had throughout, you know, church history and then also like how does he influence us today as a 21st century church? Like what ideas can we take away from, from Pascal and really incorporate into our modern lives? Yeah, I think he's he's had a lot of influence on how Christians do apologetics. Mm-hmm. Like Pascal couldn't depend on having a uh, an officially kind of Christian nation to enforce uh, faith mm-hmm. on people anymore. They were kind of mm-hmm. uh, that world was breaking apart, and so mm-hmm. Pascal uh, is a he kind of provides a model of how to appeal to modern secular people. Uh, people wow. who pr- who prioritize reason above everything else. He has this, you know, whole theory about uh, you know the heart has reasons that reason does not know, um, and he really exemplifies, you know, really well how to kind of pierce through people's kind of casual assumptions um, and uh, and 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 appeal to the imagination uh, and not just to the reason to kind of get people in the you know you have to get people in the right mindset to, you know, kind of uh, start to make them long for, uh, for mm-hmm. holiness, long for truth, sometimes before the, the mind can be convinced. And so uh, I know C.S. Lewis, he quotes Pascal mm-hmm. several times in Mere Christianity. I think he was uh, pretty influenced by Pascal as well. Uh, John mm-hmm. Wesley was heavily influenced by Pascal's prayer on mm-hmm. sickness. He read it often. Uh, so he's mm-hmm. had an effect on different people uh, throughout church history. Mm-hmm. Beautiful. Um, Do you have any uh, quotes that you'd like to share from Pascal? Anything that he's known for? Maybe some famous ones or some quotes that you have been particularly moved by? Uh, I think I've shared all of the quotes that I had uh, mined from him. He's he's very uh, acerbic. Um, He can be very like uh, very dry uh, and and witty in some (laughs) ways. Like. he, he, he often says things like, um, I, I don't know if I'll get the quote exactly right because I don't have it written down, but uh, he says basically, uh, none of the other religions have believed in the depravity of man, and so they're all wrong. 
<laughs> it's like if you can't see, you know, the empirical yeah. evidence of man's depravity, then you wow. you're not on the right track. <laughs> wow. Yeah. That's so oh. fascinating. And you mentioned the quote about um, reason and and the heart or love or whatever that one was. What's that one? Like the heart has reasons that reasons does doesn't know or something like that. Yeah, he said the heart has reasons that reasons knows nothing about. Yeah, mm. he says the the people can know something intuitively before mm. their mind is convinced. Uh, and so, you know, one of the things that people often threw at him in his day was that, well, it's always the most uneducated people, the simplest people that are believers, <laughs> right? Like the educated people, you know, know that that's all a bunch of superstition. And Pascal says, uh, you know, I'm not surprised at all to see, you know, that some sometimes people who have uh, little education sees things uh, by intuition that people who are too educated wow. for their own good, uh, mm. you know, don't get, you know, uh, and that's in line with what Jesus said, you know, you've revealed these things to little children and hidden them from the wise and you know, of this world. And so Pascal, you know, his idea is that the heart you know, the intuition often grasps uh, goodness, truth, and beauty before the mind does. But somebody who's come to place so much pride and emphasis mm -hmm. on their mind will yeah. often ignore their intuition and yeah. uh, often turn out to be wrong. So good, John. That's such a, a profound thought. Um, we usually like to end the podcast, as you know, with just a, an interesting fact or a fun story or anything like that. Is there anything from uh, Pascal that you can think of that um, would fall in line with that? Yeah, so Pascal died at the age of 39, and uh, his servant was cleaning out uh, his estate, cleaning out his belongings, and uh, picked up his coat that he had worn every day for years and uh, discovered a lump inside the lining of the coat. And so they actually cut the lining out and uh, pulled out a, a piece of paper. And when they opened it up, it had his uh, night of fire conversion experience on it. And he had never shared that with anyone. And we wow. would never know, have known about it if it wasn't for that servant who felt the lump in wow. running of his coat. <laughs> Crazy. Hey, that's so powerful. Yeah. Sort of divine sort of happening. Hey, Providence. Incredible yeah. yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, John, thank you so much for sharing so brilliantly and so articulately about Blaise Pascal. Um, is there anything else that we should know about Blaise Pascal or um, if people want to get more into him, is there anything that you would recommend? I'll just pick up a copy of the Pensee. Uh, there's uh, yeah. good translations available, and uh, it's really accessible. And you don't feel like you have to read it in order because there are a bunch of scattered, loose thoughts. And so you can really just mm -hmm. jump all over. It's like the book of Proverbs. You can start anywhere wow. and work your way around and, and quickly get to know uh, this brilliant Frenchman. Beautiful. And if people want to connect with you, how can they do that? You can follow me on Instagram at John Adams to go. Uh, and yeah. you can also uh, look up my parents' ministry. It's hard to spell. Yeah. Rehoboth, Haiti. <laughs> Rehoboth. Can you spell it for us? R-E-H-O-B-O-T-H. So if you yeah. Google that, Rehoboth Ministries, Haiti, you'll probably find my mom's blog. And, uh, and you should yeah. be able to connect with our ministry that way. Awesome. All right. Well, thank you so much, John. Uh, thank you for a brilliant episode. And thank you to everyone who's joined us today as well. We will catch you next time on the Eagle and Child podcast. See you then. Bye. 
Thanks so much for tuning into the Eagle and Child podcast. That's all from us for today. If you want to support us, you can like, subscribe or drop us a review. And don't forget to follow us on Instagram at Eagle and Child podcast. We'll catch you next time. Much love.